Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, episode 24. The Pearly King's plan was to raid all the great houses, associations and halls in the eastern part of the city, removing every last bit of non-perishable food so that the Cockney horde could eat. He then intended forcing a way to Paternoster Row, from where St Paul's and the land surrounding it would be shaved, continuously, making a base for the uprising, from which they would prepare the assault on Whitehall and the Houses of Parliament. "'An ambitious plan,' Jeremy remarked, as he and the Purleys stood high atop a rangooning tower on London Wall, from where they could see the crimson dome of St. Paul's. "'We'll beat them all,' opined the pearly king. "'We'll start a revolution,' the pearly queen said. Jeremy nodded. "'The revolution has already begun.' And the revolution continued the day after. Knowing that cutting, shaving and burning only made London street hair grow faster and thicker, Jeremy was surprised to hear that the trichothaumaturgists of the Cockney uprising had developed a method, albeit a haphazard method, of dealing with the city's choked thoroughfares. Using traditional African hair designs, they knotted, plaited, and pulled the hair into rows, so that the pale passages were exposed between plaits, many of which were oiled to keep them lying flat. In this way, they created narrow lanes through which the cavalry and infantry of the uprising could pass. Charamy gazed out along Throgmorton Street, its black hair neatly tied up into parallel rows, with ribbons decorating some of the plaits. The Bank of England and the Royal Exchange stood nearby. He watched units of cavalry mounted on destrerios charge across the street. A line of black-suited bankers waited at the far end, but they stood no chance. The hydraulic lances of the cavalry, their fiendish war cries, and the momentum of the individual destrerios, some augmented with steel vanguards, all made the charge unstoppable. Jeremy did not know whether to shrink in horror at the bloodshed or cheer on the brave men of the uprising. But when he saw banknotes floating down from the roof of the Bank of England, his enthusiasm got the better of him, and he cheered. Mrs. did too. Alas, that he had been a knob for so much of his life. The pearly king stood at his side. It is real good progress being made. Yes, Jeremy agreed. We'll have this wretched government by the balls in a matter of days. Let's see if their money can save them then. The pearly king laughed. Court Mansion House fell, but at a cost. Ten courageous cavalry blown to steaming smithereens by a natrio bomb. The infantry of the uprising hung every last man of the enemy remaining in the building, then torched it. Ravens flapped down to peck at gibbety bodies. Jeremy didn't care for that kind of treatment, but he was in no mood to complain. This was a revolution, damn it. There was going to be casualties. By now, 
Detachments of uprising food gatherers were streaming through the streets, following the hair platters, forming chains of people to hand food back to central stores, then moving on. There were no reports of knobs, bankers, toffs, lawyers, or indeed of any others of the upper classes. The rumour of the uprising had scattered aristocrats to the four winds. Jeremy smiled, pleased, but he knew resistance would be centred on Whitehall and Westminster. These, here today, these were mere skirmishes. The war had only just begun. By the end of the day, the uprising had reached Queen Victoria Street, Cannon Street and Watling Street. As night fell, camps were made, food eaten and Joanna's played. The sound of barrel organs echoed out over the city, and a thousand jolly sing-alongs too. Jeremy ate eel pie and mash as though he were a cockney. He felt like one. He knew his days as a minor gentry were over. This was living. St Paul's Cathedral fell without a struggle. The priests, vergers and choir boys, fleeing west, carrying their precious Bibles and manticores. It was given to the wisest and most respected leaders of the uprising, greengrocers, fishmongers, labourers, to destroy the pews, hymnics and crucifixes of the place, which they did with delight, smashing every last stained-glass window with rocks brought from the banks of the Thames. In this fashion, the building was made clean again, all hint of unearned authority washed away. Dis good, the pearly king said. I like what I see and nice the work. Jeremy nodded. He stood near to the pearly king as often as he could, knowing that his presence would be invaluable in the war to come. Yes, Jeremy Pantomile was a traitor to the upper classes, but he was a real human being. Mrs. helped out alongside the women of the uprising, which mostly consisted of them telling men how to wash clothes and prepare food. Some women, the stronger and younger ones, fought in infantry units, and a few even rode alongside the cavalry. With the hair around St. Paul's, plaited in West African style, the uprising headquarters were prepared. Hundreds of tents and marquees rose up, so that the land between Cannon Street and Paternoster Row became a tent city, with a grand sequin-studded marquee for the Pearlies. Jeremy and Mrs. refused special treatment, lodging in a small tent amongst the ironmongers and mungmongers, where they kissed, cuddled, and, very quietly, made love. Next day, it was onward to Ludgate Hill and Fleet Street, Jeremy, telling Mrs. he needed to be at the front, put on steel fandangos, goggles and a wrought-work helmet to protect him from the ejector of the battle, for Guff Square was near. As soon as he could, he escaped the fighting and headed up Shoe Lane and then through a maze of passages into Guff Square. The place looked much the same, the hair longer, unclean and with lumpy dandruff over which he tripped. He saw no people, not in the alleys amidst the hair, not even peering out from upper-floor windows. 
the square was deserted. At his own house, he hammered on the door. No key, of course. He heard nothing within. No sound of booted feet, nor Scottish muttering. So he smashed a window and climbed through the glass shards. Brushing himself down, he called out. Anybody there? McTavish, you about? No reply. Silence. In the kitchen, he found the desiccated body of his valet, gnawed by rats, semi-clothed. For a while, he wept. This scene, he knew, would have been repeated all across London. He unlocked the back door and stepped into his hairy garden, cutting a strip with head shears, digging a hole and burying the body. For a tombstone, he used a simple plank of wood, on which he scratched the words, waste of a good man. There was almost no edible food in the pantries, but he took what he could, dry biscuits, salted meat that for some reason had withstood decay, packets of dried fruit. A bowl of oranges on the kitchen table was nothing more than a film of vivid blue mould. From his rooms upstairs, he gathered tough clothes, boots, money, and a briefcase of geographical instruments. Also, all his papers referencing the Suicide Club. Then, it was back to the whirl, blood and bustle of the Cockney uprising. For a few moments, he regretted losing that guff square tranquillity he had so enjoyed, but he knew it was an illusion, bought at the expense of the majority of the people of London town. Old days, now and gone forever, he shrugged. Back at St Paul's, he passed his retrieved food on to the gatherers. To Mrs, he said, My goodness, how I've changed. She nodded. I knows. Next morning, Sheremy spoke privately with the Pearlies. Your Majesties, he said, I have a boon to ask of you. Speak on, man, said the Pearly King. Halfway up Chancery Lane lies Bedwood's house, the home of the Suicide Club, which is the foremost exploratory society of London. I beg you not to destroy that building. Hmm, why? Because inside lie all the tools, papers and equipment, if any yet remains, that I'll need to carry your dreams on to Westminster. I see, and though I don't like it, Jeremy nodded. I understand. The uprising should not discriminate. But, sir, this place is different. I know it intimately. I know its resources its possibilities. As your agent, I'll be diminished if I can't call on it. The pearly king nodded. That good point. I need you, sure. Jeremy bowed low. Thank you, your majesties. That day, the uprising forged its way across the city to Kingway and the Strand, pausing only when the sun set but rumours began to fly about defensive positions not far away. Jeremy, Mrs and the Pearlies 
went with a stout East End detachment to the Victoria Embankment, along which they strolled until they reached Cleopatra's Needle. There, a pair of men clambered up the structure, attaching a telescopia to the top, returning wires trailing to ground level like monkeys. The wires were attached to a plexograph, whose screen showed them the view from the top of the needle. I see in, the pearly king muttered. No like in. Charami saw and disliked also. Along Charing Cross Road stood hundreds of soldiers, battalion after battalion after battalion, massing in Trafalgar Square, where they numbered five hundred or more. Cannons stood prepared to fire, guns lay on easels, multi-arrow bows and steam-powered vanquishers readied. They're offending Nelson, Jeremy observed. It is the very quick of England, prepared by the government to halt our progress. A battle is near. Northumberland Avenue was similarly protected. We'll halt the progress of the uprising nearby said the pearly king. There's no point going further west when we're not ready. Sharami nodded. I leave tactics and strategy to you and the experts, he said. But then came cries from the detachment infantry. From the rooftops of Savoy Place and the Savoy Hotel, men emerged, snipers and other deadly types. Retreat, shouted the pearly king. They ran, but at once engines of war rose up on the Savoy roofs, trebuchets firing metal ammunition, flaming boulders and razor-sharp multi-arrows. Lumps of metal and stone clanged and thudded amongst them as they ran. Hair sizzled and burned, choking them. But then there came a scream behind Jeremy, and he stopped and turned. A great cube of metal had struck Mrs. "'catching her clothes so that, as it rolled towards the edge of the embankment at Waterloo Bridge, "'she was dragged with it. "'No!' Jeremy shouted, running to rescue her. "'But it was too late. "'The cube mounted the embankment edge and fell into the Thames. "'Misses, too. "'So that, by the time he reached the edge, she was almost gone. "'Jeremy!' Jeremy! she screamed. Save me! The cube sank. Mrs. sank with it. Jeremy stood rooted to the spot, unable to grasp, to believe what he saw. It could not be possible, could not be. The pearly king himself fought through fire and steel ejector to rescue him. Jeremy! You can't stay there, man. But... The pearly king dragged him away, and Jeremy wailed and screamed and struggled, but he was too weak, too tired, and too shocked to resist. Through stinking clouds of hair smoke they ran, while from the Savoy roofs came whoop and catcalls, and yet more missiles from the jury-rigged ballastai. Then... They were safe in Lancaster Place. The pearly king had tears in his eyes. Man, I am so sorry, he said. Jeremy fell, limp, half-conscious, and his mind seemed to drift away from his body. 
as if nothing earthly mattered anymore. His love was gone forever. The dragon! Velvine almost fainted when he heard the news. But then he looked at Lilibet and realized that in this place there was something he could do about the dragon. Hair grew around him, thick and luxuriant. To Lilibet, he said, Are the workmen's sheds where they used to be, eh? The workmen's sheds? Velvine stood up. He felt strong, determined. Where the carpenter works, the blacksmith and the farrier, where the gardeners have their tools. I suppose so, Velvine, dear. Well, to those buildings we shall repair. Follow me. They forged a path through the hair, emerging at the end of the pear garden, to head through the walled garden, and then around the west side of the house to the shed complex. Velvine was pleased to see everything as it used to be, the stables, the yards, the sheds themselves. He strode inside the blacksmith's workshop and looked around. "'What are you looking for?' Lilibet asked. Velvine grabbed a great iron pole leaning against a wall and replied, "'This!' "'What is it?' He hunted around the workshop, not replying, until he found a knife with a blade eight inches long, which he rammed into the hollow end of the pole. "'A lance!' he said. "'A lance?' And now I need a horse. She followed him out of the workshop and said, But most of those horses have been taken away to do war work. Only the poor old ones remain. Well, I will take the best of that lot, he replied. I must have a mount. In reply, Lilibet glanced into the sky, gasped and pointed. The dragon! Through automatic reflex, Velvine ducked, but the beast was yet some distance away, rising from a roof atop the house where its sword wheeled and then headed straight for the workman's yard. She knows I'm here, Velvine cried. What will you do? Velvine raised the lance, ready for action. Defend, he said. The dragon approached with terrible speed, the wind whistling past its wings, with the noise like artillery shells falling. Its hide was dull red. It was clawed and vast, with eyes like the yellow eyes of cats. It opened its mouth and let out a scream, then blue flames that projected ten feet or more from its mouth. And Velvine saw every one of its prey-hound teeth. He stood firm in the yard the lance ready to do its worst. With luck, the dragon would try to knock him over, perhaps even land, then he could plunge his weapon into its chest. But as the dragon approached, Lilibet panicked and turned to run. Velvine shouted, No! Stand by me! I will defend you! Too late, she ran. With an adjustment of one wing, the dragon changed course, dropped, then grabbed Lilibet in its claws, soaring off into the sky, turning and flapping back to the house. Velvine stared. Lilibet shrieked and struggled in the claws of the dragon's right foot. No! He yelled. I will not be beaten this time! 
he ran to the stables at once to see a row of equinoxes in which five horses stood, all with their heads poking over the doors. Velvine assessed them as quickly as he could. Too old, too small, too fat. That left two at the end, a bay stallion that looked perky and a pure white mare, neither too old nor too young. Yo, my pretty, Velvine said, opening the white mare's equinox door. In the yard outside he checked his lance, then saddled the mare, mounted her and tapped her flanks with his heels. To the house, he cried. The mare leapt forward and Velvine <laughs> cantered across the yard into the iris garden, from where it was a short step to the rose garden. But the hair was growing thick and fast, and he struggled when he approached the house. As he entered the rose garden, he saw dozens of people, most of them wounded soldiers, but many nurses and a couple of doctors. To the nearest nurse he shouted, Why are you all out here? The house is choked with hair, she replied. Velvine looked up at the walls to see blonde hair falling down in great tresses, while most of the surrounding garden was also choked. Well, we shall see about that, he said. He urged the mare up the back steps of the house until he faced the open doors, where he paused. He could see that the corridor inside was half-blocked with hair, growing from the walls and ceiling, and he knew the rooms would be in a similar state. Nothing for it, he told the mare. Forwards! The mare did as she was urged, at first wary, but once inside, confident, and Velvine rode her to the nearest stairs. Upward! he cried. The mare struggled on the steps, the hair wrapping itself around her hooves, but she forced her way up, then cantered along the corridor to the next set of stairs. In this way, Velvine ascended to the top floor of the house. Here, the hair was thick and crinkled and white, and smelt of shampoo. But at the end of the great corridor, running the length of the manor, he saw a tumble-down wall, a ruined door and a red glow the lair of the dragon. This is it, he told the mare. This is our hour of necessity. We shall gallop down that corridor and meet whatever it is at the end. Courage will be required. But we have that courage, you and I, and we shall prevail, eh? With you and with my lance, I shall succeed. He paused, drew breath, then shouted, Falilibet! He charged down the corridor as fast as the mare could take him. A few feet away from the ruined door, he got his first view of the lair. A chamber created from rooms with knocked-down walls, piles of rubble in every corner, silver, gold and jewellery piled high, and in one corner, trembling with fear, Lilibet. And the dragon at the rear of the lair, breathing fire. He galloped into the lair at full tilt, swerving to make straight for the dragon. It leaned forward, screamed, and then let out a column of flame. But Velvine pulled on the reins, slowed the mare, then kicked her forward when the dragon pulled his neck back. And in that flame-free moment, when the dragon was between breaths, 
he flung himself forward and lunged with the lance. It struck, plunged deep into the chest. With a bellow that shattered windows and hit Velvine like an artillery explosion, the dragon turned on its back, its wings beating the floor. The mare collapsed beneath him. He leapt off, then struggled to his feet and ran to Lilibet, grabbing her, then running out. The mare followed moments later, neighing in terror. Velvine staggered down the corridor, the stench of singed hair making him cough, the mare cantering ahead to escape the din of the dragon's demise. Lilibet gasped as she ran, but seemed unharmed. Velvine took the stairs down as quickly as he dared, then ran to the front of the house, where he paused. Are you injured? he asked. Lilibet shook her head. Not physically injured, Velvine, dear, but in shock after my terrible ordeal. It is over now. Thank you, thank you so much for your courage in rescuing me, she said. It was the very least I could do. You were always so helpful, Velvine, dearest. Velvine grinned. Even he, the founder of the Suicide Club, who had tramped, battled, and spied his way across every continent in the world, had not imagined that one day he would kill the dragon. He glanced around. Hair was falling from the ceiling and every wall, great hanks of it, to land on the floor in dull, lifeless mounds. He rushed to the front door of the manor to see the same happening outside and there was more than a hint of green in the gardens as natural life was revealed. He leaned against a wall, exhausted, and glancing down saw that morning's copy of the Times. Cockney uprising rampages across London town. Working classes of East End in revolt. He picked up the newspaper with a gasp. Great oats! he said. It surely cannot be. But it was. He turned around to tell Lilibet the news, but she was not there. Lilibet! Lilibet, where are you, eh? No reply. Lilibet, there is news from London. We must fly. But nothing. Lilibet had vanished. <laughs> You have been listening to Stephen Palmer's Hairy London, narrated by R.D. Watson.